The gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. And by Casper, the online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com gist and using the promo code gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 21st, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The state of the union is, well, say it, Barack. And the state of the union is strong. He said it. We thought he might say it. And he said it. First time since 2006 that the line was said in an unadulterated form. It was a speech where Obama also said, and this was the most quoted part, the shadow of crisis has passed. New York Times headline, Obama defiantly sets an ambitious agenda. Defiant? Who's he defying? He said a bunch of stuff he believed and all the cameras were trained on him. What's so defiant about that? He's the president. That's what he's supposed to do. Did he say, no, no, I'm definitely not going to say anything nice about Rebecca, this hardworking mom from Minnesota. I'm going to bring up her past dalliances as a juggalette. I'm going to assail her for her love of ranch dressing. That would be defiant. When you bring the prop out and you say, hey, she represents my agenda, there's no defiance there. Did he say, and the astronaut, I'm going to call that dude an earth hater. No, that would be defiance. He wasn't defiance. Better to not be defiant. Ventura County Star headline, Obama stands his ground, which happens to be a law that Obama opposes, reminded me of the Evansville Courier headline, president sticking to his guns. Which is pretty ironic because after highlighting his anti-gun policy after the Newtown shooting and seeing all of that legislative action go absolutely nowhere in Congress, guess what domestic issue Obama didn't touch? Guns. Not one mention of guns. So no, sticking to his guns, he most certainly did not stick to his guns. Bergen County record, Obama's challenge, better politics. Oof. Good luck with that one. Decatur Herald and Review, Decatur, Illinois, Obama crisis has passed. Wait, why do I mention that? Because it was the headline underneath and the big picture. Scoville Zoo camels take time to learn about each other. So it turns out they got a new camel, getting to know the old camel. The old one's Mona Sasha. She's kind of an adult camel. She's getting to know her new lad camel friend. She lost her old friend. Here's a line from the story. Grief is different for camels. But it soon became evident that Mona Sasha realized Seymour wasn't coming back. She grew calmer, almost somber. So there you have it. Somewhere between better politics and camels taking time to learn about each other, I think we have problems that are both workable, unworkable, and right in between. On the show today, don't worry about the Republican response, because that's my spiel. And former Cracker frontman Dave Lowry on the ills of the music industry. And countering the narrative of radical jihad, everyone says they'd like to do it. Let's hear from the one guy who has a few ideas a bit stronger than that. In combating ISIS, President Obama is asking for new powers, authorization of military force, Hawkish members of Congress say we need more than that. We even need ground troops. But there's one thing that no one disputes that the United States needs to fight ISIS, 
a counter narrative, a different argument to hook the would-be jihadis who might fall under the thrall of the latest version of bin Laden or even the forces of radical Islam that go beyond what bin Laden ever dreamed of. Maybe one reason that no one argues with the idea of countering the narrative is that it's a strategy without spelled out tactic. I mean, who in the West really needs convincing that ISIS's argument for a caliphate isn't an argument at all, but a simple call to nihilism? Well, joining us now is Mark Ginsburg. He was deputy senior advisor to the president during the Carter administration. He was also U.S. ambassador to Morocco. He knows the Middle East and he knows television. Hello, Mark. Good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for coming on. So counter the narrative. We're all willing to sign on to that. Everyone thinks that that's really easy to do. But maybe the reason we're not doing a good job is that everyone thinks it's really easy to do. Mike, unfortunately, it is not. And some of the greatest minds in the U.S. government and in Madison Avenue and Hollywood have tried to come up with a counter-narrative over the last decade since the 9-11 attacks. But the fact of the matter is, is what is attracting uh, people to the websites of, uh, of the uh, Islamic State or the websites to al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is the sense of adventure a more religious calling, if you will, about the role that Sunnis should be playing in the confrontation against the Assad Shiite, the dreaded Assad Shiite regime. And most importantly, the fact that they, these young people consider this, this, this to be an opportunity to, in effect, join the equivalent of the Foreign Legion. Adventure, fame, glory, they have no idea what they're getting into. And frankly, the idea that ISIS has been portraying this as a military commercial, as if the movie Stripes was being replicated again. You recall that great movie yeah. uh, with, with Bill Murray. Uh, this is ridiculous. This is what they're going to find out. What it is is, a, is nothing more than barbarity, torture, and maiming. And the only thing that ISIS can hope for is that they brainwash these young people when they get there. So we're told that it's a cult of martyrdom and that the people who sign up for it are attracted to that. Are you saying that they would be put off if you accurately portray their odds of dying for their cause? Absolutely. The fact of the matter is that most of these people do not have, at least we're talking about the Westerners, do not have, a, and unless they had been religiously indoctrinated into radical Islam from a young age, they have no idea about the tenets of the Sharia. They have no idea about the Hadith, the verses of the Koran. What they have seen is the ISIS attractiveness, the social videos, but they have no idea that this is really a religious inspired calling. So is this the sort of thing that's not to be combated? I mean, the way to do it is not to have a better talk show, not to have more reasonable talking heads, but actually to go, you know, social video to social video, um, tweet for tweet with ISIS? Well, look, my, my view is very simple. I follow what is coming out of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. I know Arabic. I've spent a great deal of time on counterterrorism social media. I can tell you this. What the United States and the West needs is not what I would call the engagement of reasoned uh, Western ideals. It needs SEAL Team 6 in-your-face media portraying the barbarity of ISIS, portraying the nihilism of al-Qaeda, and basically declaring uh, and showing these people that there's absolutely nothing but hell to be gained as a result of killing and murdering 
and maiming innocent people in the names of a religion that they don't even really understand. Who do we get to advance the message? The equivalent of, you know, the anti-gang message where you get former gang members to talk to the kids? Well, uh, listen, I'm all in favor of that. I'm all in favor of people who have some credibility to say, you're nuts, you're crazy, this is BS. There's no way you're going to go to heaven on this. Paradise doesn't await you for murdering people. You are going to go to hell. That's the message that needs to be sent to them. And your experience is you have run TV stations essentially in the Middle East. So give me a sense of what version of the counter-narrative is out there now. Is it like the you know reefer madness scare tactics that a kid would just laugh at? Unfortunately, there isn't that much out there right now. The Arab governments have not really collectively come up with narratives. There's been the individual calls by uh, certain leaders of Al-Aqsar University in Cairo and perhaps a couple of imams or two in Saudi Arabia declaring that this is not the true calling of Islam. But there hasn't been a consistent Arabic-inspired social media attack on ISIS. That's really what is essential and missing here. Is it the programmers are fighting with one hand tied behind their back? Why isn't there? Are we being too nice, too politically correct in how we frame the message? Well, we certainly are. And the fact is, is that when you have the State Department, which is worried about making sure that it maintains a diplomatic presence and is not, does not open up our embassies to uh, attack, the fact of the matter is it should be some other entity that is waging this campaign against ISIS. Frankly, as far as I'm concerned, it could be uh, the special forces. It could be any other agency or a, or a private organization that's doing this. Better a private company doing this that knows how to recruit, train, and doesn't have the constraints of the U.S. government controlling it. Do you think there are stars out there, people who uh, would be recognizable or compelling to the kind of lost 16-year-old, either in the American suburbs or more likely the European suburbs? Well, the fact is, is that everybody, whether you're a dissatisfied or disaffected youth or a Muslim, there are people who will inspire you who are not always on the side of ISIS. You have Dean Awadallah. Uh, you have the uh, comedy troupe of the Axis of Evil. You have John Stewart. Oh my gosh, Jason Alexander, the former George from Seinfeld, is a is a is a folk hero throughout the Arab world. There are people who uh, uh, connect directly with young Arabs. We should be identifying who those people are and engage them in order to provide that narrative and stand up and basically talk what we call talk sense on a on a demographic as well as a spiritual and and a um, national level to these people. Unbelievable. The art vandalay method of foreign engagement. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Remember, be careful of the latex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's what? What's uh, unusual about me being an architect? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mark Ginsburg was president of Leolina Productions, which was a producer of commercial Arabic language television. He's a former ambassador to Morocco. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Michael. 
there are all these disruptive technologies, but you know, they usually come with a downside, right? Like Uber, we've been reading about their uh, pretty arrogant CEO, and iPhone, iTunes, you know, how they make them in China, and uh, Airbnb, they may be illegal. But I'm thinking about mattresses. Like the mattress industry just deserves a comeuppance, and now that comeuppance has come, and I think in a pretty ethical way. Casper, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses, and they just cost so much less than the regular prices we're used to paying for mattresses, right? Mattresses are like $1,500 or more. A Casper mattress costs between 500 bucks for a twin-size mattress to $950 for a king-size mattress. It blows regular mattresses away price-wise and comfort-wise is excellent. They combine premium latex foam with memory foam. They're made in America and they have a risk-free trial and return policy. So what's to lose? You can sleep on the thing for like 99 days and return it in time and get all your money back. And we also have a special offer. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist. Casper.com slash gist. For better nights and brighter days. Professor David Lowry teaches a course in the economics of the music business at the University of Georgia. If the name, minus the professor part, sounds familiar, you may know David Lowry as the leader of Camper Van Beethoven and then as the, I guess, co-chair of the group Cracker. Camper Van Beethoven has a new album out, El Camino Real. Cracker has a new album out called From Berkeley to Bakersfield. There's a lot of California references there, but I actually want to talk about the music business a little bit with David Lowry. Hello. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing great. And let me just say, I am a big fan of your bands, plural. But first, I want to talk about a speech that you gave that tore into the music business in 2012. And I guess you were taking on the promised brave new world that never materialized, disintermediation, all that stuff. Do you think that the new world with Google, Apple, Amazon is worse than the record companies ever were? It's a little comparing Apple to oranges. I specifically in that speech to start out, I talk about how you know, one of the great things about the digital environment is that, you know, creatively we're empowered. The main problem is that we have a new set of gatekeepers that essentially have, you know, a duopoly, a monopoly over how we get paid. You teach this course in the economics of music, but I know you were trained in mathematics. Do you love teaching about the economics of music like you loved music or loved mathematics, or is this more of an obligation? Um, I kind of fell into it, but I realized, you know, I started an indie label in 1985 or whatever, right? We were the first wave of indie rockers, and we had to pretty quickly figure out, we loved doing this, but we had to figure out how it would pay the bills. And, you know, we've always sort of, in my career, we've leaned to controlling as much of our rights as possible. Like, for instance, you know, Camper Van Beethoven's records are not really out under record deals. They're just licensed and rented out to people. You know, we kind of retain those rights and take them back every time the contract runs out. So it's not like the music business itself, you know, the record business is any less sleazy than it's been in the past. It's just that Somehow, a lot of these digital players have managed to be even worse 
than the old line record labels. You know, I mean, a lot of our problems have still have to do with, you know, it's in record labels interests. Remember songwriters. I always come from a songwriter perspective. Remember, we're an expense to the record labels. It's just like, you know, the cost of pressing up a CD, paying the songwriters is an expense. You know, we've got all the forces of evil stacked against us, lined up against us. <laughs> you know, that's what's shocking. Does Taylor Swift not putting her new album on Spotify, is that big? Is that symbolic? Or is that sort of sui generis to tw- Taylor Swift? I mean, she's so huge. She alone among artists can bypass Spotify. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that she talked to, told people that she was going to do it for six months, before that, I don't think anybody was listening, and why she was going to do it, I think, you know, makes me um, think that that was actually an ideological decision on her part um, with good intentions. What a lot of people don't understand is that it's not that what she was saying was that it's not that she didn't want her songs on the streaming services, it's she didn't want them on the free part of the streaming services because she felt like it devalued music. People needed to de- devalue music. She was perfectly willing to have her music behind the paywalls. And Spotify is it's hard, takes an extremely hard line on this, and, they, and so does YouTube, which is like you either are on the service or you're off, and we decide whether you're, we're going to give it away for free or not. Right. Yeah. So to me, to fix streaming, you have to do, you need somebody like Taylor Swift to say, hey, if we're going to move these people from the free services to the premium services where we get a more sustainable rate, you got to give them some reason to do that. I mean, it's just basic behavioral economics. If you get it for free, why would you pay for it? Wait, I just want to clarify one thing. You're not saying that she gets more money if you buy the album. You're saying that, you know, there's the pay 10 bucks a month and get your Spotify without any ads and unlimited you, skips or whatever. More that, money. That means more, more money. Mo- when you do that, more money goes to the artist. 10 times more money. Right. Wow. 10 times as much. It varies month to month. Sometimes yeah. it's eight times, sometimes it's 10 times. And, and it's really hard to break those figures out. We spend a lot of time. At, uh, on my blog at the Tricordis, um, getting people to send us their statements, you know, so, you know, medium-sized record labels, and we tear apart the statements from Spotify, and we have to reverse engineer how much money they're getting per stream. Uh, you know, these are not basically figures that people make public, but it's eight to ten times. It's definitely like eight to ten times a month. And actually, another funny thing is, you know, in the countries where Spotify is bundled with tele, you know, telephony, like internet service and uh, phone service and things like that, it, it pays pretty well. And in some ways, the European countries that do that are actually subsidizing, those consumers are actually subsidizing American consumers. The Tricordis is really cool, and like you say, it's these these uh, sometimes record labels and sometimes individual artists who should be competing against each other, but they've all kind of banded together to figure out what the rates are. Who are your big allies there? Uh, who do you want to give a shout-out to, either in terms of the companies or the artists or anyone else who's you know, advanced the knowledge uh, that we have about the music industry? Most of the people who collaborate with me do so anonymously because they have to work with these digital services. And they don't want to endanger their relationships. I mean, think about this. We are a free country, right? And 
these webcasters and broadcasters are so powerful, my colleagues have to regulate what they're saying and remain anonymous. David Lowry, his blog is The Tricordist. His university is the University of Georgia, and his bands are Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. So you know the old line about neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night staying the mailman from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Gloom of night, by the way, I mean, that's wrong. They close. They close at like five. They close at dusk. So what's with the gloom of night? But it is true. They trudge in the snow. Use that. Use that for yourself. Because if you sign up for stamps.com, you can have that mailman, that trudging snowy mailman, come to your house and pick up the stamps, pick up the packages that you've printed out with your own computer and printer using stamps.com. Hand them to the mailman. Over a half a million small businesses are already using stamps.com. We have a promo code. It is the gist. That's the promo code. Here's what you do. You go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and you type in the gist. A special offer qualifies you for a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer. It includes a free digital scale. It includes up to $55 in free postage. So again, go to stamps.com and enter the gist. And now the spiel, a loaf of loafers. So life isn't always fair to Republicans who evoke unusual nouns like binders full of women. What's so funny about binders full of women? Mitt wanted to give some ladies some jobs. What's he supposed to do? Keep their names on scraps of loose leaf paper in a trapper keeper? No. Binders full of women. Seems to make sense. Yet cue the meme. Last night you got one of these too. The oddly shod Joni Ernst. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Senator Sandwich feet. Growing up. I had only one good pair of shoes. So on rainy school days, my mom would slip plastic bread bags over them to keep them dry. But I was never embarrassed because the school bus would be filled with rows and rows of young Iowans with bread bags slipped over their feet. But to me, bread bag shoes weren't just a mockable meme. They stood for something. They put me in the mind of a great storyteller of the middle class. Mr. Bruce Springsteen. At a concert, he might want to slow things down a little bit. Talk about his own bread bag shoes. It got pretty cold in my house at times. I remember one time making a phone call to my girl from a pay phone, and I turned up my collar, but it wasn't enough. You had to put something on your feet. And in my house, it wasn't pumpernickel sack shoes or brioche satchel shoes. It was only them goddamn bread bag shoes. Bread bag shoes. I got bread bag shoes. 
It's life you choose. You're wearing bread bag shoes. I got some good bad news. I got some real bad news concerning bread bag shoes. That's right. Bread bag shoes. Bread bag shoes. All right, kill the street bad music. You know, a lot of us could relate to Joni Ernst being forced to wear weird things on our body. I remember standing on the bus stop one day in chiffon dog shorts. We didn't have much growing up, you know, but my grandmama, she raised up some terriers and she'd always put them in shorts, you know, little cute dog shorts, kind of with the hole in the back for the tail. And then when we kids, when we'd run out of shorts, we'd have to wear those chiffon dog shorts. But none of the other kids at the bus stop would laugh. You know why? I remember what they had on. They had... Some would wear bread bag shoes, sure, but others had on game-worn Walt Bellamy jerseys or uh, tissue box cleats. I remember one time Ezekiel, he, uh, he had some Tongan cast iron skis. And I remember his sister, uh, Juniper, she had some uh, pewter skorts. She had them pewter skorts. Then one day was a real hot day, right? And I had to take that F train. I had to take that F train into town, as I always did. I had to go down those two levels, and I had to get on that crowded train all by myself. I was I was about 13 or 14 years old, and my body was changing, and I, I was a little self-conscious. And I remember my mama, she said to me, she said, Don't you worry, son. You just use what I used to use and what your daddy before you used. And I said, What's that, mama? And she looked at me, and I'll never forget the words she said. She said... Matzo deodorant. You wear that matzo deodorant. It'll get you through the tough times. The matzo deodorant. And you know what? Everyone else on that train, they had, they had matzo strapped to their armpits too. And some of that matzo was leavened. But it didn't matter. And you want to know why it didn't matter? Because that train was headed straight to the insane asylum. And then... To a little place I call the United States Senate. The United States Senate, of course, being a smaller, darker room inside the insane asylum, where they administered electric shocks, which we called failing to achieve cloture. Matzo deodorant! We wore us matzo deodorant. We had some Vicks Vapor Rub pants and a gummy bear suppository. Matzo deodorant! That's right. That's the sound of Mott's deodorant. Play a pretty for McLaren's. You know what I'm talking about, Clarence. You had you had some of that Mott's deodorant too. What's that, Clarence? You wore a uh, you wore polenta mustache wax. Okay, that's fine. And that's it for the show today. Just producer Andrea Salenzi wore a clingy Nutella sash. Joe Meyer, managing producer of Slave Podcast, has eschewed the mortadella flared jodspurs because they were incompatible with his desire to mark his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slave Podcast, favors a paprika foam helmet. You can go to iTunes, and when you do, please leave us a review. Maybe not about this show or the insanity thereof. Nah, go ahead. What the hell? Slate.com slash just email is a way, I'm going to say the way, to sign up for our daily email, which we'll send to you in your inbox, and you can play the show right off the email. We're on Yo, the app Yo. You sign up for podcast once you download the app. We'll tell you as soon as we're ready. Facebook.com slash Slate Gist is our Facebook page. Come on. Matzah deodorant. What was yours? What was your shameful non- 
clothes item that you were made to wear on the bus that no one judged you for because everyone else in Iowa had to wear. Thanks for joining us today. This show can be enjoyed directly through headphones or via earbuds constructed from calamari dusted with confectioner's sugar. Either way, thanks for listening. And some of it, it was unleavened, but it didn't matter. You know why? Because the train was headed to the insane asylum. <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> it didn't matter. It didn't matter what form of matzo was under your armpits. And you want to know why? It's because the train was... 